It's the TEH podcast, episode number 169. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. So Gary, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about your travels. Yeah. And I think at that time, I also mentioned that I have some upcoming travel as well, mm -hmm. specifically international travel in both cases. And one of the things that I guess, I guess it keeps me awake at night occasionally mm. um, is this, this scenario where I'm in a different country mm -hmm. and I've lost everything. Uh, yeah. By everything, I mean my laptop is gone, my phone is gone, um, hell, even my my spare clothes are gone, right? Somebody stole my suitcase and, and everything with it. And my wallet is gone. The scenario that I'm trying to, to get my brain around is how do I reconnect? Hmm. And I say that because so much of the information that I would then use to, once again, prove my identity, get a new passport, uh, you know, get a new credit card, all that kind of stuff. Um, is available to me in digital form stored online. But if I've lost all my stuff, how do I get back in? Uh, and it's complicated because we're using password managers. Well, there's one barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, because we're using password managers, we're using these nice, long, convoluted passwords that you can't possibly remember, which would do me no good. Um, and on top of that, we've got two-factor authentication, which also often relies on uh, basically having something that just got stolen from you. So I'm curious. Um, I've, I've worked through a couple of scenarios for myself, but I'm curious if this is something that you thought of before your trip. And if there, if, if you did, what did you do? Obviously in yeah. high level stuff, cause we're not going to give away this, the, the secrets here, but, um, so that somebody could break into Gary's accounts. Um, yeah. but if you did think about it, what would you think? I mean, you know, the first thing I think is I, I think about the two factor stuff and what would happen if I would lose the main uh, provider of those two factors, which is, you know, the second factor, which is my phone. Right. Um, I, I am using, uh, let's see with my password manager has a, a thing in it that allows you to get the two factor codes for most systems. Um, so not only could my phone provide it for me, but my laptop as well. Right. And my iPad, right. which had the, the app, but um, also, you know, Apple itself in its password manager has the two factor for a lot of things as well. And then I go back, you know, go back to your roots, like your, your email accounts, because a lot of things you could restore as long as you can get a confirmation by email, right. Um, to but, get back into the account. Right. So the, the fundamental here, of course, is all those devices are gone. Um, all those devices are gone. And, so, and you, and you yeah. can't, you don't know your email password. And even if you did, there's the two factor that you don't have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would have to. Uh, yeah, if I lost all of my devices, cause I had, you know, multiple devices that I could, you know, it's like, oh, I lost my phone, which is in my pocket, but in my mm -hmm. bag is my iPad. I could get two factor from that, sure. you know, and back in the hotel room, my suitcase is my laptop, you know, that right. kind of thing. So there's like, I've had that, but if somehow all of those were gone, yeah. I mean, the first thing I would have to do is buy a new device. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, so I'm thinking, I was thinking of borrowing, but yes, borrowing, buy or, buy or borrow. Yes. <laughs> and then log. And then I would have to, um, boy, uh, I don't know if there would be a good solution that wouldn't take a slight amount of time. I mean, I guess the main thing would be to simply uh, put up with um, losing a few things um, until I returned home, mm -hmm. um, which would be, you know, it's like, well, could I, you know, as long as that's okay, as long as I can get by with that, um, then, you know, I could probably survive. Like, could I get access to my email? Uh, you know, uh, how would I do that exactly? Um, I think I probably could because I, I have ways to connect with my devices at home. Right. Yeah. If that's I actually part of, part of my strategy too. Yep. Yeah. So I could actually go to any computer that I somewhat trusted and with the knowledge in my brain, I could connect to my computer at home, which would give me access to a second factor there right. through virtual screen sharing. Right. 
Right. Um, so there is at least that kind of like door that pushes me. And also, so there are some systems, uh, and, and there is actually for like iCloud where you could trust another person um, with a code. So I, you know, I've done that, of course, with my spouse, but, um, you know, spouse is traveling with me. Maybe I lost my, all my devices and she lost all hers, you know? Right, exactly. Uh, I'm thinking of the lost luggage scenario and we'll see why that's important here in a minute. But yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of vectors where I could get things back, but I, you know, may be missing, you know, may not be perfect. So I was running through this in my head and yeah. um, the, the, the most important account I have for, well, there's two actually, I've got a, yeah. a ProtonMail account and a, a Gmail account that are, are essentially the two most important ones when it comes to getting into the rest of my world. Um, I haven't I haven't worked through the Proton Mail account just yet, yeah. um, because it also has two factor on it as well as does my Gmail. But the Gmail has multiple factors, right? So I, if I lose the app on my phone, then I can still have it send a recovery code to an email address. The question, of course, is how do I get access to that email address? Mm. You and I, I think, are in an enviable position or at least a unique position in that we have access to some other technologies that the average consumer does not. For example, even though my personal email address on my personal domain um, is... Uh, you know, it's it's a separate email address, absolutely, but it's handled through Gmail. So whenever I am you know, managing that email, it's all within an, a, an associated Gmail account. Mm -hmm. However, uh, that email is still routed through my server. So, and I do have ways of getting into my server to be able to intercept anything that's been sent to that email address. Uh, mm. So that would be the way that I would go about potentially getting two-factor codes that were sent to that email address uh, without necessarily having access to the normal Gmail account that I would normally get access to. Um, Authy is my two-factor provider uh, for, it's the Google Authenticator compatible. Yeah. And I've been I using it for, them, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been using it for years, mostly because it's one that you just set it up on multiple devices. And as you pointed out, it's, it's you've got the same codes in all the devices, so it all just works. Um, in, and that's where I say, yes, there's a scenario where, yep, you know, I could remote desktop to home and fire up Authy on my home machine, even though I'm on the other side of the planet and get the two-factor code there. The interesting thing about Authy um, is that there is a real chicken and egg situation when you're trying to uh, install Authy on a new device which can of course be a PC um, or a mobile device. And that the only way to confirm you're authorized to have access is by responding to a prompt on another device that's already logged in. Mm -hmm. So that kind of means that that remote desktop scenario, it's not just about the two-factor codes, it's also about potentially having the two-factor app on another device. I've been noting that, as you pointed out, several of the password managers, um, LastPass included, as it turns out, which is the one I use, um, are including uh, native Google Authenticator two-factor authentication codes, uh, whereby you enter a code as part of the login information. You know, normally you save a username and a password, uh -huh. and then you also enter the essentially an encryption-related code that's associated with the two-factor that you set up. Um, so that LastPass can, in fact, enter all of the information for you, um, or at least have access to all of the information. Uh, but that still does require that you have access to LastPass. And in my case, of course, LastPass itself is protected by two-factor authentication. Mm. So there are definitely hoops to be jumped through, but it's worth considering. And I bring it up, like I said, it's a, it's these are the kind of thought exercises that, on one hand, keep me awake at night, but on the other hand, I find fascinating, right? How How do you... Um, bootstrap your digital life if you've literally lost everything except for the information in your head. And it's right. something that um, can happen. I mentioned it, I, I mentioned the the carry or the luggage scenario because as it turns out, I think I mentioned this last last time as well. Um, I'm flying through Amsterdam. Mm. And actually Amsterdam is my destination. I'm going to the Netherlands. And they currently are having some very, very serious issues with, of all things, baggage handling. Mm. So it is very conceivable that there could be uh, a baggage handling problem uh, where a bag gets lost or a bag gets routed to the wrong destination or 
who knows what. I know that years ago we had someone visiting us from Holland uh, and their bag took a side trip to um, Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh -huh. Uh, so, you know, their bag went from Amsterdam to Johannesburg while well, they went from Amsterdam to Seattle. And then a day later or a couple of days later, their bag showed up in that in the meantime, they didn't have everything in their bag. Now, in today's digital world, that can be, um, uh, you know, more of an issue. Oh, My yeah. solution to the baggage handling problem is that I'm going to be traveling very light. I'm only going to have carry on, uh, mm. which, you know, will work for me. I'm traveling alone. So there's just not a whole lot to be, that I necessarily need to carry. I'm not going to take all my cameras. I'm not going to take, you know, a bunch of other stuff. But um, it still does mean that, you know, everything I have, uh, digital and otherwise, is on my person or with me. And if something happens uh, and I lose all of that, how do I rejoin the internet? How do I rejoin the world since so much of it is online? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's something I've struggled with. And I, I mean, that thing is, I try not to let it get in the way. <laughs> of course but, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, part of it is, is like, like, what if I don't rejoin the world? You know, what's, it's probably not as, it's probably not the end of the world situation that, you know, I, I think it is like if I had to, yeah, if I had to do two weeks on a trip right from the beginning, I lost contact with everything that would be mm -hmm. tough. But if we, you know, you were a few days away returning home, right. Um, you know, it's like, well, okay, I guess, um, <laughs> it's just going to have to wait till I get home and I'll figure it all out then. Right. Um, the, uh, my scenario, since I'm traveling alone, at least my yeah. wife here at home, which means, and the internet is one of the ways that we stay in contact throughout my trip. Um, so very high on the list of priorities. If I do were to lose yeah. absolutely everything, um, is to come up with a way of, um, letting her know that, you know, Hey, I'm not on the internet, but I'm still alive. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you could just do like regular phone calls and exactly. stuff like that, or an Old email technology. through a, uh, some account, you know, have some email account but create one that doesn't really matter that is easy to get access to on any computer. Right. Right. Uh, lots of things like that. Um, you know, back when I used to have employees for my business, you know, there was always the ability I could contact them and work with them to establish uh, things again. Um, lots of things. It's interesting that you bring this up though, yes. because yeah, this actually goes into a completely different conversation I had with some of my patrons recently. Um, when I, when I got my, I got uh, the new M2 MacBook Air mm -hmm. and, you know, first new computer in a little while. So, and I, I went to install everything easier than ever. Every time I get a new computer, it's, I know it's easier to get up and going than before because of cloud and, and how apps are distributed and everything. So easier than ever. I mean, I was like no time at all. I was, I didn't need my old laptop at all. But one of the things was, it was like, oh, one password. Let me grab it. Okay, great. Latest version one password. Let me log in to get my vault of passwords. No problem. I store that in the cloud. I was stuck. Couldn't figure out how to do it. I was like, ah, there's some trick I'm forgetting. How do I do it? I struggled with it for like 20 minutes before I finally looked up a few things online. I was like, all right, tired of waiting for this. Let me look up stuff online and realized, oh, I'm using one password version eight for the first time. I was actually using version seven before one password version eight does not allow you to get vaults stored just anywhere. One password eight only works with vaults stored at one password servers. Interesting. Yeah. Which I know a lot of other password uh, management software either started that way and have only ever been that way, right. or they went to that way pretty quickly or, you yeah. know, and have been for a while. Yeah. Last password, One password that way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, so I was like, oh no, I don't like that. And, and, but you know, then I started to think about, well, maybe I do like that. I don't know, but I've always, cause I started with one password back before there were online vaults. <laughs> when right. the whole idea was that you stored your passwords in a vault that was an encrypted file on your computer. And then, you know, oh, you have two computers. You're one of those people, you know, because it was a long time ago. Oh, you could just copy the vault from one to another and you have the same vault. And, you know, how often do you need to create online passwords? You know, I mean, the Internet's just a fat. So I, I, uh, you know, but then very quickly it went to, oh, you could put your one password vault on Dropbox. And then it ah, syncs right. automatically. Right. 
And they really quickly went to supporting that fully, as in like, that's an option. And they used the word Dropbox and menus and stuff like that. Sure. So I went to that because I was like, you know, I did it before they supported it. And then I did it when they supported it. And then they supported iCloud Drive when that came out. And I said, perfect, I'm going to move my vault there. And I iCloud Drive. So all I need to do really in 1Password 7 is to say, oh, my vault's in one, uh, iCloud Drive. Do a little authentication. Boom. Done. Yep. A new machine set up. All my passwords, 1Password are there. But I couldn't do that with 1Password 8 because they don't have that option anymore. And there's no mention of it. It's not like the menu items are there and it says, oh, by the way, this doesn't work. You need to move here. It's just like it's suddenly gone. Did I fall into a parallel universe where this feature never existed? <laughs> I'm surprised that they didn't like warn people well I, well the rollout of one password eight has seemed weird i haven't looked into it but one password seven is still downloadable in the mac app store and you could still get it from them mm -hmm. and i think they rolled out mobile first and and everything's kind and they're also do they also were doing a transition from pay once to subscription right which has been ongoing kind of thing and i don't mind i actually moved to the subscription uh thing before this because i i support software subscriptions sure. as a more sustainable way to develop software but you know this kind of caught me off guard it just wasn't paying attention i wasn't paying attention to this happening you know and because it, it all rang a bell it was like oh yeah oh, that's why i was on one password seven <laughs> um but at first i was like well i'm not doing it i'm going to switch completely over to icloud or i'm going to find another solution but then I was like, well, why exactly am I not doing it? I mean, you know, I if I don't trust them, then I shouldn't be using their software. If I do trust them, then I mean, it's an encrypted vault anyway. Right. You know, so and this actual situation made me think, oh, here's it would have actually come in handy because there was no way I could get access to my one password vault. If I didn't have access to iCloud. Right. But if I did have my stuff in one password. I wasn't using an iCloud vault. Right. I actually could get access to it right. without iCloud. So I could be stuck somewhere with no way to get access to iCloud because the only way to do two-factor for iCloud is through Apple system, right? I need to have that thing pop up in a, on an iPhone, an iPad, or a Mac saying, here's my code. Oh, that's right. The same thing that la that I was saying um, Authy does, right? You have another device that's logged into your account. Go there to get right. the code. And, yeah. and it has to be an Apple device and yep. it has to you know, be their own system, very nice and secure. But mm -hmm. if I lose all my Apple products and say, hey, that's fine. I could get by for a little bit. I just need access to my email, which is actually on a Google server. Right. If I had access to 1Password, say just by logging into my account at 1Password with my right. full encryption key, I could then get one password to give me my Google password and have it give me two factor. And I could get into my Google email account and have access to my email in which case, and, and then I also have access to my own stuff. Like right. my, you know, I'd be able to log in to answer comments and stuff like that at MacMost and all. I would actually be like, oh, okay, I, I'm fine. I get by. So yeah, I mean, I-, I well, Have you moved to the cloud? To, to their one password to cloud the one, one password cloud yep. i have not yet but i you know i even when i talked to my patrons about it i was even like this bothers me i haven't done it yet but at the same time i know i'm going to <laughs> <laughs> you know i could my the very the extremely logical part of my brain has already seen the inevitable end of this whether it's a few <laughs> days from now or a few months from now and that right. is that i hit the button that says Oh, migrate my vault because there's there's a button in one password seven where I could say migrate my vault to the one password server and it does it for me and then it's all there. I already have a vault there technically. I logged into it to check. It's empty. It's right. an empty vault with my right. name on it. So all I need to do is say migrate and all of my stuff from my regular vault goes to that and then I'm done. And then I go to one password eight and it's all good. Um, and now you know I just maybe moved a few days closer to doing that because of this because of what you said i gotta yeah, i gotta say that is one of the nice things about um about that structure like i said LastPass uses the same thing if i can get into my LastPass account i've got all of the all of the passwords i mean they're, right. they're all there the only thing i don't have bundled in it right now is two-factor and i may start investigating that 
Um, it, it's nice. I mean, it and because yeah. it even it shows it to you. It even fills in. Yeah. Um, and you know, with both iCloud doing it, you know, iCloud Keychain doing it, and One Password doing it, sometimes I'll hit it. I'll go to a site and it has that authentication on it, and mm -hmm. I'll be like, oh, and I stop thinking. Okay, I need to do the whole thing. Pull out my phone, find the Google Authenticator go into that. And then I look on the screen and notice that two different systems are actually showing me, hey, here's the code. Because <laughs> I got one password showing it to me and iCloud. I'm like, oh yeah, never mind the whole pulling out the phone, finding the app thing. Right. I'm good. Right. I've got it. So question for you. Yeah. Something that I advise people to do, and I mm -hmm. do it myself more or less monthly, depending on how uh, motivated I am. Uh, do you back up your vault? And by that I mean pack it yeah. up in a non-encrypted in, in in an other encrypted format. Um, I I don't I know what you mean. I mean there is there are some systems in place because I think technically the vault is getting backed up because it's on iCloud Drive, and since it's getting used, there is right. a local I... cache copy. But I have all my stuff in both iCloud Keychain and One Password, so. That means that I have them in two places. Right. So you could lose everything in, yeah. in one and you'd still have it all in the other. I, I think if I only had it in one place, mm -hmm. um, I'd be more concerned and I probably would have already been like, oh, can I do this? Because I used to back in the day when it was just one password. Mm -hmm. I used to, you know, every I used to do like archiving all the time. I used to be like every six months or so, be like, oh, let me clear off some stuff, mm -hmm. save like all my important files, put it on like a some sort of media and put it uh, you know, somewhere Lock, in a closet or whatever. Back, yeah. and, uh, and then I would say, oh, let me grab the password vault. Here it is, it's a file, it's right here. So it's just that I guess I don't, I don't think right, about it because uh, of the duality of- There's, a, there's a, a distinction that I'm making though that, um, uh, that I'm trying to cover as well. Yeah. And that is that, like in my case, I use LastPass and LastPass the yeah. vault is encrypted. I have no idea where it is on my machine. Um, it should only be within the browser. Obviously, it's up in their cloud, yada, yada. What if LastPass just fundamentally stops working? Yeah. So what I do, when I, when I say back it up, what I do is once a month, I actually export my entire vault um, as a plain text CSV. And then um, I encrypt that using something else. Oh, okay, I get you. And store that somewhere. So that, um, like I said, complete, so incredibly unlikely, but a complete and total failure on LastPass's part, um, I would still have all of that information. And it's, it's, it's funny because I know a lot of people worry about that. Like, what if your password manager stops working? Well, um, of course, backing it up is a good idea. But you can always do forgot password. It's it's a pain yes. to do it for every single account, but you're not blocked out. You're not locked out because you don't have your password manager. So anyway, I was just curious if you did something similar. And it sounds like you you actually do have uh, belt and suspenders in a way. Um, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'm really careful about that stuff. And I also, um, I mean, uh, iCloud Keychain did uh, recently add the feature where you could export. So, right. you know, that wasn't there. So you could export and then have everything in a file and then cool. encrypt that file and then have that back up uh, that way. But yeah, the, you know, the, I mean, you really can just about anything, get back into it if you're legit, <laughs> right. even iCloud, right. Which has got to be, you know, cause it's email and it's all your, it's all this private stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Apple with like, I don't have anything. Somebody stole my iPhone. I lost this. I lost that. It's gone, but I'm me. How do I get back in? It's mm -hmm. going to take you a while. You're sure. going to have to provide a lot of information to them, and it varies depending upon the situation. And they're not going to give you access right away. Sometimes it's simply delayed by two or three weeks to get back in. Yikes! Because of that, you know, being sure. authentic. No, sure. they're going to do a lot of checks, and they also know that you know people trying to break in are not interested in two or three weeks. They, they want to break in now. They've got other accounts to break into, right. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, that's true. I mean, it's like, they've got other things to do. They've got a hundred accounts to break into today. Well, they can't yeah, be waiting two, three weeks. They're going to um, go for the low hanging fruit anyway. right? Exactly. So, so yeah. you know, that's, there are ways to get into some of these systems. It scares me a little bit. Google scares me a little bit more because I don't think there's anybody to talk to, Correct. you know, um, whereas Apple, you do have somebody to talk to. You know, you can get on with a human, 
and you can begin the journey back to getting your account back. Right. Um, whereas I don't know if with Google, if you really do have. To the best of my knowledge, you do not. Um, and yeah. I believe that may even be true for their, um, their business suite as well. Um, the only thing that I rely on, but it, I, so I do have an account that's a businessy thing and there are people to talk to there, you know, when oh, there's money okay. involved and you're getting okay. paid for ads yeah. and stuff, but, uh, and certainly with YouTube as well, but um, my account, that's basically my email account mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. I could completely lose that. If I lost the right things, have nobody to talk to, except that I'm using my own domain. Right. That's what I was so alluding I to earlier. Right. So if something happened to my Google account, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a pain in the ass for so many oh, yeah. different reasons. Yeah. You'd but lose a bunch of email. Definitely. I, but, um, actually I wouldn't because I'm downloading the email to a desktop app, okay. you know, all the time, but, sure. um, um, you know, you immediately go over to your server where you host your domain and you change where the email gets sucked up to. Exactly. Or you, just, you change it, pick another, another, pick yeah. Another provider. Yeah. Another provider or another oh, Google account. No, no, no. <laughs> if I were to choose another provider right now, by the way, yeah, um, I would probably choose ProtonMail. Yeah. Um, that I'm is... pretty, pretty happy. I've, I've got... Um, one of my other, that's the, the downside of having so many domains. One of my other domains is hosted natively at, uh, email is hosted natively at Proton. And it's actually a really good experience. I'm, I've been pretty pleased with how that's, how that's working out. So if I have to go I, uh, often hear, uh, mm -hmm. how good Proton mail is and the other, I have like, you know, two under my sleeve because I've got, you know, okay. All the recommendations of that. And also, um, fast mail heard that too. Yep. I, I used them for two or three years, like in the early 2000s. Right. And I don't even remember why I switched away. I, it might've been my beginning of using Google for things or mm -hmm. whatever, but I do remember specifically noting in my brain when I switched away from them that they were absolutely perfectly good. Yeah. Like I had no problems. And I think when I switched away from them, I said, I'll switch back in a heartbeat if I have a problem anywhere else. And I have looked every once in a while to see that, Hey, they're not only still there, they're improving, they're yep. well thought of and all that. So, yeah. So I've got two backups and you know what, sometimes, I, you know, Google's actually charging now for the business email stuff. It was free for a long time. Um, not but, the way I've got it hooked up. I'm using a personal account, but yeah. Okay. Well, using the, like the business and I've got like a, my own domain set up and all that, it's going to cost me exactly $3 a month. Right. Yeah, Start, yeah. And actually it does now, but it's waived for like a year. So I get these invoices every month saying, zero. you know, zero. <laughs> and eventually it's going to say three. Uh, and three is not enough to push me into any action. Right. Um, uh, the way to do the way I do it anyway, with um, uh, the just a personal Google account yeah. is that my email actually collects on my server. So technically the email is hosted on my own server. Yeah, but then I use Gmail's ability to fetch from yeah. another account mm. um, and send on send as that other account. Oh yeah, and I'm just that doing just this. Solves the problem for me. I'm doing the straight up, yeah. normal, yep. no frills, like you know, or no, not no frills, but no no tricks. Right, like this, they're just my email server. Yep, and yep. and I I enjoy their their spam filtering. <laughs> why I, that's it, why I run it that way. Uh, that's actually what got me there in the first place is, yeah. um, and it's, it's so frustrating because you would think that um, spam filters elsewhere hmm. would be continually improving. And yeah. to, in my experience, um, and from what I keep hearing uh, from my readers is that that's not necessarily the case that, you know, outlook.coms, which if any, if I should have an affinity for anything, it would be a Microsoft product. And yet I cannot recommend outlook.com. In fact, I tend to disrecommend it simply because their mm. spam filtering ranges from pretty good to almost non-existent and you can't predict. Yeah. Um, it's horrid. So, and you'd think after all this time, this is something that um, they would have gotten better at. And that's true for many, many, many other email providers as well. Yep, I know. Mm. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that cropped up the other day was somebody pointed out that not everybody 
really understands what end-to-end -end encryption mm. really means. Um, a lot of people are under varying degrees of misinformed security. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they feel safer than perhaps they should because they see something and think that because it says secure, it's secure, completely mm -hmm. secure. And of course, that's not the case. Um, the, the, I'm doing an article, I've got an article coming up on this uh, in a couple of weeks, but the thing that brought it to mind is an article in Vice, and it's actually made um, headlines elsewhere, where Facebook was able to give police information about uh, one of the, about a conversation that was happening on Facebook Messenger, even though um, the connection between the participants and Facebook was encrypted and secure. Mm. So I thought it would be interesting to, um, to talk a little bit about what end-to-end -end encryption really means and what some of the current less secure alternatives are, and in some cases, why they matter. End-to-end um, -end encryption, well, to, to back up, let's just take the messaging situation, the messaging scenario. You've got a program on your machine, I've got a program on my yeah. machine, and we're having a conversation with one another. End-to-end um, -end encryption means that on my side, before I send you a message, it is encrypted in such a way that you and only you, in other words, the software on your machine, it's the only machine that can decrypt it to actually see the contents of the message. That includes any or all of the middlemen. Now, as we've mm -hmm. seen in the Facebook case, yeah, there's a middleman. It's called Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, but that's true for WhatsApp. For example, WhatsApp owned by Facebook. Technically, there's a middleman for WhatsApp as well. But with end-to-end -end encryption, which is what WhatsApp at least is trying to um, highlight a little bit more often, even the middleman can't see what's happening. That's incredibly important because with this other scenario, with Facebook Messenger, they don't yet have end-to-end -end encryption. Even though your connection to Facebook is encrypted, it's decrypted in the middle. So what happens is I send you a message. So the message mm -hmm. gets encrypted on my machine. It goes to the Facebook servers where it is decrypted. Facebook can now see the message. They then re-encrypt it in such a way that only you can see it. But the bottom line is that it was unencrypted in the middle. Facebook could see what your message said. And that I think is what has a lot of, of people misunderstanding what encrypted communications really mean. Mm. It's not enough to be encrypted. It's good, don't get me wrong. It's good that the encryption between my machine and Facebook is encrypted. That yeah. prevents a level of snooping or listening in uh, from being able to happen. It's the scenario that we often talk about with respect to like H use HTTPS if you're in an open Wi-Fi hotspot or something like that, right? Because somebody could be listening into the digital communications. If it's encrypted between you and the service, all they see is encrypted garbage. They can't see the actual messages. Um, which So that's good. That's what happens in all of these cases. But it's this middleman. How much do you trust the middleman? Mm. And even if you do trust the middleman. How much do you trust them to actually stand up for you if they are faced with a court order? That is apparently what happened with Facebook. They were actually given a court order from, I think, one of the states that was involved in this little transaction. And um, they then were compelled to provide that information to the authorities, even though the participants may have thought they were protected by encryption. Mm. So the thing to make sure you're looking for when you are in a situation where you're transmitting things that are potentially sensitive is not just encryption, but end-to-end -end encryption. Yeah. That is what you want. Uh, Facebook Messenger doesn't have it. WhatsApp does. Signal does, Telegram does. These are tools that are used by um, often embedded journalists 
where um, it, there's not just a service in the middle that could be looking at what you're doing. There are potentially other intermediaries, like the government itself could be trying to listen in on what you're doing with end-to-end -end encryption. They can't. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if a go, even if uh, Facebook, for example, on a WhatsApp communication, um, is uh, given a court order to provide the content of the communication, they can't because they never saw it. All they saw was encrypted data. Hmm. Now, yeah, this gets weird. First of all, encryption, while it is technically complicated and Often, I mean, from my perspective, I just find the math and the concept behind good encryption almost beautiful. It's an it's an art. Mm -hmm. um, this whole concept of public key cryptography, uh, where you can encrypt something with one key that could only be decrypted by a different key, um, I find that absolutely fascinating. Mm. Yep, me too. But there's only two keys, which mm -hmm. makes it perfect for end-to-end -end encryption. What if you have a group conversation? What if you have three people in your conversation? Mm. How do you ensure that that communication is completely encrypted from all prying eyes? I'm yeah. not sure I have a solution for that that doesn't involve the person or the, the service in the middle decrypting the message and then re-encrypting it for each of the recipients. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any ideas? Interesting. I hadn't thought about that idea. Um, yeah, we'll get to the we'll get to another interesting. I mean, idea you almost have to just you almost have to you know multi, you know uh, square the encryption keys. You know, if you have three people involved, A, B, and C, mm -hmm. you have to have a pair of keys for A and B, a pair for A and C, mm -hmm. um, and a pair for B and C, and a pair for B and C. And then if you have four people involved, then you you know the added yes. three more. So that's probably the way to do it. And thank goodness computers are really good at doing that. Just they okay. could, but it would still, I mean, I could see that being problem problematic as the discussion involves more and more people, right? As you say, it's, oh, it's an exponential, sure. it's exponential increase. And it's not just an exponential increase in the number of keys, because remember, for each person you want that message to go to, you have to separately encrypt it and send that just to them. Right. So if yeah. you've got five people in your conversation, you're sending that one message, you're encrypting and sending that one message four different times right. to the other four recipients. Yeah. And and of course, we're just talking about messaging here because you know, it is interesting. What I was thinking when you started talking about, you know, people see encryption and they think, mm -hmm. oh, good, you know, check, done. But encryption and end-to-end -end encryption are, are different levels. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of people miss that. A lot of people see encryption, think that's all I need. And end-to-end -end is what they really expect, even though that's not what they're getting. Sometimes end-to-end, -end, you know, that middle thing like Facebook is needs to be uh, open. I mean, social media, obviously you're posting, you know, you might want your data encrypted going to Facebook, but you, you, you want the thing that you sent Facebook now posted on your Facebook page. Right. Right. You know, so you just didn't want the, the cafe that you're in knowing that you were logged in and posting that right. the uh, same thing for like a situation, like a bank, like take a bank. Well, we'll take, actually, let me take a step back. There's even, you're talking about messaging person A to person B, but a lot of encryption is just person A. Yes. That's it. And so for instance, take the notes app on the Mac or OneNote on, on Windows. Um, you want to store something, you want it to be encrypted end to end from your machine is encrypted. It's sent over the internet, encrypted, it is stored encrypted. At no point is it decrypted. The server that's it's on has no idea what this data is. It's just a bunch of bits that's encrypted. And the only time it's ever decrypted is for you. Um, that that should be the standard for storing information that nobody has to see. Which, uh, by the way, you just described how good password manager is enabled. Yeah, is, yeah, is uh, yeah. Pa good password manager. It's another example. Now, um, sometimes that's not the case. Like, for instance, if you're talking to you, know, you log on to your bank account. And you want to see how much money you've got in the bank or initiate a transfer from account A to account B. Um, obviously, the bank needs to know. <laughs> you know, you can, you, if you send an encrypted message to the bank saying transfer $100 from account A to account B, and the bank's like, okay, this is encrypted, I can't do anything with it, it then it's no good, right? At some point, a third party 
needs to be trusted with that information. That information needs to be acted on or stored or something. And, and that's to be expected. Whereas like using a system like Telegram, WhatsApp, Signal and all that, um, you don't want the company in the middle to know anything about it, just the two people on either end. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of variations on this. And mm-hmm. I think that is where people might get tripped up a lot is because, well, first of all, arguments between two people, one person may be thinking of one scenario and another person may be thinking of another. I think that happens a lot in end-to-end encryption talks, you know, mm-hmm. or, or or debates where you're debating somebody about the importance of end-to-end encryption and storing your personal information, and they're debating about using it in messaging, say, or email. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, oh, you got to get on the same page first and talk about the same thing. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, the thing that uh, there's the whole idea of a government backdoor, right? Yeah, that yeah. was something that I thought of earlier. That one, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, because if the company, so, so you've got actually two ways that the party in the middle, like a Facebook, could give information to the to somebody one is is that the government never has access to it um except they ask for it and the company just gives it to them and the other is that the government just skip asking (laughs) and use their own account which has special privileges to go in and check for the information uh and the problem is you're thinking well who would want to ever you know why would a company like facebook or somebody want to do that well they might want to do that because the law says they have to in another country, right? You know, may hopefully not in the United States, but another country, the the government there could simply say, "Oh, by the way, it's a law now. If you want to operate here and make billions of dollars here, <clears throat> that we have a special government account, and we could just go and look at anybody's stuff." Or worse, and then the company we, we, needs to decide whether they give up billions of dollars and watch their stock drop by like thirty percent. We have, or this, they say, this machine, oh, "Okay, we have this well, machine that we want to sit in the corner of your data center." And yeah. all of your communication has to be routed through it. Yeah. So there's that. But even going back to that original thing where the government asks for information, say a mm-hmm. warrant or whatever request, mm-hmm. there's so many variations. I mean, because there could simply be somebody in law enforcement calling up a company and saying, hey, do you, I want to I want to see this bit of information. And the company just saying, yeah, sure. Here you go. No warrant, no court action, nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean. If that's something the company wants to do, I mean, they might be violating their own terms uh, that they have with the user, or maybe not. But, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, if if somebody, if a police officer wants to look in the trunk of your car and asks you and you say yes, no court order was needed. Right. Um, It's the same thing with these companies. Other times, companies may ask for like, oh, I need official. It has to be official. Okay. So you, they get a warrant for that information. Now there's actually still two options. One is the company says, yep, all the T's are crossed. The I's are dotted. Everything's good. Here's the information you want. Mm-hmm. The other one is company says, no, you're going to have to sue us. And this third option actually probably happens a lot more than people think because you know we don't want to think of companies as doing anything good like that. But, you know, if a company wants to be known as the, a privacy oriented company and wants to get business from customers that, you know, want their privacy to be protected and stuff, mm-hmm. then they may say no to an official warrant and not go and say, well, the law's law. Here's the stuff. But say no, have it go through the courts, have it be examined by the state constitution, the federal constitution, all of that stuff, and actually have to have a court ruling saying yes they can ask for this or no, you can refuse this. Um, so, so yeah, when you talk about, will a company stand up for me and my privacy, you can look at, well, they require a warrant or even when a warrant is issued, if they think the circumstance, you know, if it is about something where they want to see somebody's personal information and it's because of a new law in Texas day, you know, or Florida or wherever, mm-hmm. um, the company could say, you know, no, we're going to say no. Take us to court. Let's let's get a real ruling on this because we don't we don't think just because you have a warrant that this does give you the right. So, and I, I know that for example, uh, Proton Mail mentioned earlier, yeah. um, one of their focuses is privacy, and they have resisted um, yeah. 
court orders. They've also very carefully explained one scenario where they did hand over some data. Yeah. Um, but then they also, the, the, A, they, they explained it publicly. You know, here's what we were asked. Here's what we gave. Here's why we gave it. And what I thought was interesting was, here's why we changed so we don't have to we don't have to give it ever again <laughs> right? yeah um but there's one thing that's common across all of those scenarios that you're outlining mm -hmm. that is the company in the middle has the data and, right and encryption mm -hmm. means they don't. they don't which makes it easy for the company to say no or they can say, yes, sure, yeah. here, here's a bunch There's, of encrypted data. Good luck with that. Hey, good luck uh, spending the next 400 years with exactly. your entire computing power uh, decrypting. Um, but, 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 and this is where it gets frustrating from a technologist's point of view. Mm -hmm. Governments want to enforce the use of an encryption protocol that has a back door. Mm -hmm. Yep. Meaning that even if the encryption is end-to-end -end encrypted, even if the data is end-to-end -end encrypted, and the only thing that's in the data center is this encrypted blob, the government would still have this magic, you know, master key um, that they could then use to decrypt it anyway. Yep. Um, that's frustrating on a bunch of different levels. Most of them, from my perspective, technology-based. Um, mm. because to the best of my knowledge, that kind of encryption doesn't exist. That is essentially a three key form of encryption. Mm. Remember I said that with yeah. um, uh, public key cryptography or, or key pair cryptography, um, you've got one key that encrypts the data that can only be decrypted by the other and vice versa. Now you have to come up with, and, and as I mentioned, that's incredibly convoluted, complicated, beautiful math to introduce some way of having a third key that could decrypt either of them. Um, a, I'm not sure it exists. It may be possible, but my assumption is that it would severely weaken the underlying encryption to begin with. And there's a master key, yeah. <laughs> right? What's going to happen to that master key? It's going to leak. And all of a sudden, that encryption will no longer be secure. In the light of that encryption no longer being secure, or in the light of the use of that encryption being public knowledge, what are people that really have something going to hide? They really have something to hide. What are they going to do? They'll just use their own encryption. They'll use their own encryption. Yep. Exactly. Even if it's transmitted across this encrypted network, they'll be more than happy to double encrypt it themselves first, um, so that nobody can actually see what they're saying, no matter where they are. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's frustrating. And, and I know that um, we'll just say that many politicians don't have a complete understanding of technology. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it, which is putting it politely. Yeah. When it comes to cryptography, many technologists don't have a good understanding of what it really means to encrypt and how things are encrypted and what the real issues are, which means this is an incredibly difficult discussion to have when the people who are trying to make the rules don't understand how, how the rules really make no sense. The people who are trying to defend uh, what's going on may not necessarily have a complete understanding of what they're talking about. Um, it's, it's, like I said, frustrating um but governments being governments they want that and that's one of the reasons that in some countries um encryption true truly secure encryption um, isn't even legal right because the government yeah. can't see what you're doing so nope you can't you can't use that mm -hmm. and just sending that encrypted data over the wire in a way that the government can't understand is enough to get you in trouble yep so Mm. Encryption, like I said, I, I absolutely love the technology, but man, the social issues around it are, are pretty incredible. Mm. Yep, it no, it is. And it's 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 scary a little bit in that um it's hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And that may end up meaning that 
there are some bad laws that come into existence mm-hmm. that have huge ramifications um, right. to everybody because let's, you know, if there was a law that there was a back, okay, it's got to be a back door. And then a big company, you know, what's, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook or iCloud or, you know, Microsoft's cloud or Google, whatever it is, has that back door. And then there's, you know, that's broken into. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's like, oh yeah, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not a criminal sending I- encrypted data. Uh, I don't have to worry about it. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, now you have to, because they passed a law. There was a back door. The back door yeah. was broken into. And now your data is out there and yeah. you have a problem you need to deal with as well as just about everybody else. Um, and yeah, it all, it, it all happened because people didn't understand it. So yeah, because usually when you don't understand something, you just ignore it. You know, <laughs> I don't understand how internal combustion engines, like I don't understand anything about fixing internal combustion engines or any parts of cars that have internal combustion engines. That's fine. I could just take my car to a mechanic. I have people that do. Yes. It's making a noise. <laughs> and it does just fix it, right? They don't have to understand it, but that's not true when it comes to encryption. If you don't understand it and there's a back, you know, some sort of backdoor law ever comes into existence, you may need to suddenly understand what and has happened to all to be, your information and all this other stuff. And to be clear, you don't have to understand how encryption works. You don't have to understand it, but you may you have to have understand to deal with what the, the ramifications, ramifications are, yeah. what the what what are the weak points? What you know, what's the difference between end to end or as I've called it in my upcoming article, end to middle encryption. Yeah. Um, by the way, if we ever do fa- find ourselves in a situation where um, a back door is legally required, mm-hmm. um, the easiest way to make that happen is to um, basically ban end-to-end encryption. And everything goes back to being end-to-middle so that um, the Facebooks mm-hmm. of the world can provide what needs to be provided in the face of a court order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, hmm. So another topic I wanted to talk about a little bit today um, is that you and I have talked a lot about how the press, which we Uh are kind of sort of a part, but we try to act responsibly, um, have a tendency to overstate things. Again, I'm putting things politely. Uh, clickbait headlines, uh, making the littlest thing seem like a really big thing is not at all uncommon. Mm-hmm. And the way that this idea or this thought came to me is that I uh, follow Hacker News on Telegram. Yeah. And they basically just announce the latest vulnerabilities as vulnerabilities are discovered, uh, which is, you know, that's interesting information. Um, I find that sure. interesting. And I, if, if there's anything that I think really, really impacts um, the average consumer, then, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for me to let people know about it. You'll note that I've not been letting people know a lot because most of what comes across there, yes, there are vulnerabilities in this and there's vulnerabilities in that. There's, you know, there's, there's um, uh, what was it that, that made me think of you specifically? Um, there was something that came across that was a vulnerability in um, um, the latest version of Mac OS, I think it was. Yeah. Um, they happen, right? They, they do. There are, there are vulnerabilities, they're known, they're, and so forth. But here's the thing. When you read through the description of the vulnerability that they're talking about, mm-hmm. in order to actually exploit that vulnerability, in other words, mm-hmm. to, in order to actually do the bad thing that the vulnerability would let happen, you got to get on their machine. Yeah. You've got to somehow get your software, your malware onto that machine. What that means is, most of these vulnerabilities, as scary as they sound, they're all gated uh-huh. by something that's in our control. And that's our ability to recognize phishing. Because yeah. that whenever you, especially when you read like some of these major breaches at, at you know large companies and so forth, eventually, like nine times out of 10, it's like, oh yeah, this all happened because somebody in accounting fell, you know, opened an attachment that they shouldn't have. And all of a sudden, the entire network was was flooded with a ransomware. Um, you know those kinds of stories. If you actually follow them through to understand exactly 
how the vulnerability was exploited, it almost always these days comes back to phishing. Now, I consider that to be good news because it's under our control, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that um, we, you and I, and everybody that uses their PC um, has the ability to avoid. The bad news, uh, <laughs> to be honest, is that it's not always easy. Phishing has increased in quality, um, especially like for the average user, it's probably not as big a deal. I mean, definitely the, the fake Google logins and so forth. Yeah, you need to know how to how to um, identify those and, and not fall for those. The ones that concern me the most are actually corporate where they're doing what's called spear phishing, where they're not scattershotting you know, thousands of emails to thousands of people and hoping one of them um, will fall. It's like they're sending highly customized phishing attacks to an individual mm -hmm. and they want that individual to fall for it so that they can get those specific credentials and gain access to the network. Um, those kind of phishing attacks are uh, on the rise and uh, getting better. Remember, we used to, to joke about how um, if some of these threat actors ever truly learned to write English properly, hmm. we'd be screwed. Yeah. Well, we're getting closer to being screwed because a lot of them are, a lot of these phishing attempts these days are really written in appropriate um, and you know relatively well-written English. So- Yeah. And copying and pasting like actual real things, you know, like, you know, if you're going to make an installer for an app, uh, you know, or, or an email that says install this, Mm -hmm. If there's a real version of that, mm -hmm. just copy it. Right. But now the link goes to your thing. You know, um, they're getting better at doing that. Um, and yeah, it, it, the other the other part of that is also physical access to the machines. The other gate. So you know, two gates that often are required by right. you know these these attacks is either you have to yeah have that phishing attack you know fallen for it install something on your machine that you shouldn't have installed or somebody needs physical access and i run into both of those all the time where there is there's a headline saying there's a exploit mm -hmm. out there and i will be able to read very carefully and notice the very small mention that <laughs> gives me a hint that maybe oh you need to install something first or the person needs physical access and then i usually go looking for a better article from a more of a tech oriented thing right. and a lot of times those really i only get a tiny bit more information letting me know you know though you there might be something where a user on another account on your mac could blah 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 i'm like whoa wait a minute here so this exploit requires somebody to be at your computer right not only at your computer but they have a user account on your computer right which is Right. It's like not normal. If you stole a computer or you sit down at somebody's computer, like, oh, they, they go out to lunch and you're at work and you go and sit in their cubicle and there's their computer. You need an account there first. You can't just get into it because you have physical access. And then the other account could be like a non-admin account, but mm -hmm. then could execute this code, which then gives them access to an admin or root. And now they could do anything they want. Yeah. So, so they needed yes. those... The first part of the vulnerability was creating that other user's account. <laughs> right. And the thing is, is that like, okay, yes, these are security holes that need to be patched. Yes. But especially when it's somebody needs an actual account on your computer, that's not something that needs to be in the like, you know, mainstream media at all. Right. This is not breaking news. Right? No. <laughs> and, and even and if it's physical access, it really should be. Like that should be like there, an exploit has been discovered that somebody with physical access to your computer could, right. and then go on from there instead of leaving it out entirely in many cases. Um, or, and the same thing with what you were saying, like yep. a, a user, if you have been tricked into installing a piece of malicious software, right. then you are vulnerable to this. Yep. yep. I've always said, and you know, it's not exactly true nowadays. It used to be true that if you give code permission to execute on your machine an app then basically it could do anything <laughs> like anything it wants now years ago this used to be completely true yeah, it used to be very true yes today basically it's not but it is <laughs> it it requires an exploit like the recent mac exploit that you were talking about um 
you know, so yes, giving an app permission to run with, and that, that app is using that exploit basically mm -hmm. allows it to do an overflow and then execute any code it wants and, any, and it could do anything it wants. But without that exploit, a piece of malicious code couldn't. So it's kind of like in the past, any piece of malware that you run, well, you're screwed. Your whole machine screwed, burn it. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it. No, 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 no. Let's yeah. be clear here because there yeah, are I people know. who who absolutely will think you mean that literally. Yeah, I know. No. Uh, Don't uh, worst burn case. it. But no, but I'm saying case, in the past, reformat, reinstall. Yes. Reformat, <laughs> reinstall. But today, in most cases, no. In most cases, oh, yeah, you made a mistake. Now you have a piece of adware or right. you have a little launch demon that's going to change your your search engine on your browser or something like that. You know, um, it's rare that a case like an exploit comes up where it's like, well, okay, that exploit plus this piece of malware does something really nasty and you need to reformat and reinstall it all. The, um, this, the scenario we're seeing a lot more on Windows uh, mm -hmm. though is definitely, I'll put it this way, the scenario that has everybody's attention mm -hmm. is ransomware. And that's definitely not benign. That's particularly nasty malware. Oh, yeah, it's only yeah, malware, but it is particularly nasty. And yes, that's the kind of a stuff that A, often arrives as an attachment, um, and B, then often makes use of one of these unpatched vulnerabilities, an exploit, um, to then do whatever it wants. And whatever it wants is to encrypt all of your important files. Yeah. Yeah, that's well that's as bad as it gets but um but yeah it usually does require well it does require one of those gateways yes yes you about. you have to be a willing participant um in in getting these things at least i guess the real step. bottom line here is you know pay attention to the news pay attention to what's going on mm -hmm. but don't just react to the headlines because the headlines are absolutely overblowing things. 99 times out of 100, um, they're not things aren't nearly as bad as the headlines would have you believe. And right. it's all in your control. If you're going to spend energy, spend it on becoming more phishing literate, right? Spending it, spend it on becoming um, a better and more adept at identifying uh, phishing emails and those kinds of things, because that's how this kind of stuff that yeah, That is like the main attack vector now. These days, and, absolutely. And, and if you do read an article and you're nervous about it, the questions to ask are, what's the gateway? Yep. Can I tell? And if I can't tell from this article whether the gateway is, oh, I installing something you shouldn't, or somebody having physical access to your computer, then look for a better article if you really want to know. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times the better article is just a few clicks away. You know, you're at some big news site and they have a short article on this thing. And then it says reported by so-and-so. And you're like, right. oh, mm, that sounds like a technology type place. You click on that. And then there's a slightly better article that says reported by security researcher so-and-so. And, -so. and right. you click on that. And then you end up at a really technical security blog um, that has all the details. And we'll actually spell it out like, yeah, if you install this piece of malware or a user sitting at your computer with access to a, a user account on the computer could do this and it'll make you feel better. Two of the sites that I use for a lot of this kind of stuff are Hacker News. Like I mentioned, I follow yeah. them on Telegram, but they're actually a, a, a website as well. And Bleeping Computer. Uh, Bleeping mm. Computer actually does a really good job of um, both identifying the threats. I mean, they're, they're positioning it in a way that the system administrators who have to fix these things can understand what's going on. But they also tend to include the information that says, okay, here's the real ramification for you know, Joe user um, yeah. and, and, and positioned as appropriately. Okay, onward. Yes. So for this week's Ain't It Cool, I want to do a rerun uh, specifically because of the traveling stuff I've been mentioning. I mentioned that I'll be visiting the Netherlands at the end of next month. Um, Radio.garden is a website that go to it. It throws up uh, a Google Earth, I think, and there's all these little green dots over it. And each little green dot represents an internet streaming radio station. So you can go and listen to the radio in whatever country that happens to have something on the globe. Now, I use that as an example. I tend to use TuneIn, but what I've been doing lately is listening to Dutch radio, um, specifically so that I can get my ear tuned 
to understanding Dutch better as it's spoken. I don't think I'll ever speak it as well as I did many, many, many years ago, but um, understanding it can be quite useful and listening to a local radio station. It's one way to do it. So cool. radio.garden and, you know, whatever the internet streaming radio station happens to be for whatever uh, countries you're interested in, they're out there and it's pretty, pretty cool. Cool. I just finished a book called Embassy Town by China Mieville. It's a science fiction book. It, um, it's probably not for everybody. It's really hardcore sci-fi. Uh, I would classify it as kind of a political thriller far future you know, humans on lots of planets if you've ever been you know thought about what sort of languages would aliens speak mm -hmm. you know and really i mean really deep like would it even be vocalized would it mm -hmm. how would it relate to how all the languages on earth you know work mm -hmm. um could it be so alien that they don't even see humans who arrive by spaceships <laughs> as actual conscious creatures because we can't speak right because they don't understand our language it's so alien to them and how things like that are resolved and all sorts of stuff it's really very interesting it's heavy stuff um and it and it and it builds builds up slowly to some exciting you know exciting ending to the book but it it, it was fascinating i've never heard a book goes in just so many usually science fiction it's just the aliens speak english right <laughs> you know never mind Not convenient yes. never mind you know never mind all the details of language there's a translator oh a computer's translating universal translator uh, yep, there's yep. something going on in science fiction this is a book that's the opposite that actually goes deeply into how do how does a vastly different alien race um and humans how do they communicate at all i've often wondered um you know we like i said there's this this assumption that when we meet aliens we'll be able to talk to them which i think is a completely invalid assumption given that um there are species on earth who clearly have language that we have yet been able to decipher yeah um so if we can't even figure out the critters at home uh, what chance do we have <laughs> out in space anyway uh, but yeah that's something i've thought about a lot i'm gonna have to add that one to my list uh yeah, yeah very cool Cool. Uh, let's see. Blatant, blatant self-promotion. The closest thing you'll ever see to an ad here. Um, I'm going to point folks at what's a screenshot and how do I take one? Uh, it's askleo.com slash, well, actually askleo.com slash screenshot. And I do that because um, I use it a lot when answering questions. I'll say, hey, send me a screenshot and here's here's instructions on how to do it. Um, it's, a, it's a tool that I recommend people be familiar with because a picture really is worth way more than a thousand words, especially when you're trying to describe some kind of a tech issue. Yep. Um, I'll uh, I'll push my video called Five Reasons Finder List View is the best. Uh, the Finder on the Mac, which is how you view and manage your files, has four different views. And if you don't look closely, they just seem to be cosmetic. Like, oh, icon view, column view, list view, just different ways of looking at the same thing. But in fact, each one kind of has its advantages and disadvantages and things you could only do with that view. And I kind of came to the conclusion recently that list view is probably the most powerful one. And I explained why in this video. Cool. I know that in all those options on Windows, I spend my entire day in list slash details view. Okay. All righty. I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. The okay. show notes are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh169. As always, if you've got a comment or a question, you can leave it on that page. We will see it. Thanks, as always, for listening. And barring any glitches in the matrix, which is how I described yeah. last week's uh, miss, yeah. uh, we'll see you here again next week. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Sounds good. Bye.